Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you live with the expectation that Christ will return? Scripture teaches us that no one knows the day or the hour that our Lord and Savior will come again. Yet we know, at the consummation of all things, that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. But so often that day seems such a long way off in our minds. As a result, many people live as though Christ's return at some future date is nothing to get all that worried about. And while there are others who are keenly aware of Christ's promise to return and deeply long to see that day come, often such people have had difficult lives, suffering various trials and temptations that have profoundly impacted their lives. They desperately want to be in the comforting arms of their loving Savior. They desire nothing more than to see his return, but it just doesn't seem to be coming. And after waiting a long time in anticipation for his return, one can become disillusioned, especially when we look around and see all sorts of injustice in this world, all sorts of sin going on, unchallenged, and unaccounted for. Even among our fellow church members, it reminds us of the situation that Asaph describes in Psalm 73. And there we read, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. But Asaph, the psalmist, comes to the right conclusion. The psalmist understands that in the end, things will be set straight. Our God is a God of justice, who's righteous and true in his dealings. And so he says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are utterly destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. But brothers and sisters, that is not the conclusion that the Israelites of Malachi's day have drawn. No, they have looked at all the sin and the injustice and come to the conclusion that God simply didn't care. They have become cynical and disillusioned about the Lord's coming, even questioning God himself. And although we might say that we would never do such a thing, in reality, don't we at times become disillusioned about God's plan, wondering where all this is going when we look at the world around us? Therefore, I preach to you under the following theme and points. Behold, he is coming. The Lord answers the disillusioned expectations of his people about his coming. And we see the people's skepticism about his coming, and we see the twofold task of the Lord's coming. Our text this morning emphasizes that the Lord is coming again. Twice it uses the word behold. The first time it draws our attention to the coming of the one who would prepare the way for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And with the second reference in our text, it announces the coming of the Messiah himself, who would come to fulfill all his covenant promises to his people, promises of salvation. The people were well aware of those promises, that their sins would be atoned for, that righteousness and holiness would be theirs on account of the work of the coming Messiah. But in spite of their awareness, they needed to be reminded that indeed the Messiah was coming. The Lord tells his people, Behold, I am coming. Words intended to combat a growing apathy and cynicism among God's people. And don't we sometimes observe the same cynicism even though we live in the aftermath of the redemption secured by Christ on the cross? We have even more reason to be confident about the fulfillment of his faithful covenant promises extended to us in our baptism. Christ has come. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us with his death and resurrection. And he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly glory, having received all power and authority. There he is preparing a place for us in his kingdom. And we eagerly await his imminent return. But cynicism and apathy are still with us today. So God's word reminds us also, behold, I am coming. Our reading begins with Malachi announcing to the people that they have wearied the Lord. This word translated as wearied is not used often in scripture. But the sense of the word is that the people have burdened the Lord with their words. Malachi is putting it in terms that we can understand. The people's words do not display an attitude that is faithful to the Lord. No, the Lord is grieved and weighed down by their words, much the same way as Isaiah expresses it in Isaiah 43, verse 24. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And to make matters work, they think that everything is okay with the way they speak. They see no reason why the Lord would be burdened by their words. They think that what they're saying is true and their words are completely justified. How have we wearied him, they ask. And so Malachi needs to point it out to them. What exactly are they saying that has the Lord so upset Their first statement in verse 17 of our reading states, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. What they are saying is their righteous and holy God is taking pleasure in the evil that's going on all around them. Their loving and faithful covenant God didn't really mean it when he said to his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy and and have separated you from the peoples that you might be mine. Essentially, they're standing in judgment of God. Yes, Lord, you have called us to live a holy and respectable life. But if you were really so concerned about righteousness and holiness, why do you allow all the wickedness and evil to continue in our midst? It seems as though you delight in those who live in sin. The statement's reference is to everyone. This might leave us thinking they were referring to the heathen nations around and among them. But in verse 3, the Lord identifies those being refined of their evil 
as the sons of Levi and the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That means they were talking about God's people. Israelites who were questioning why God would tolerate the evil and wicked deeds of their fellow countrymen or church member. Lord, you have declared covenant curses upon those who are not faithful. Why then does it seem to please you to let such wickedness continue in the midst of your people? But beloved, is that the attitude that we are to display when dealing with our wayward and sinful brother or sister in Christ? Is that how our Lord and Savior dealt with the people of Israel that he encountered when he dwelt on this earth in the midst of his people? No. When he encountered the adulteress, he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Didn't he eat at the tax collector's house? Men despised by the people of the church for being traitors and extortioners? Didn't he heal the leper and the outcast? Men and women that no one would associate with, he had compassion on the crowds and those who had gone astray, not wanting any to perish. And so we need to ask ourselves, is our tendency that of Christ or that of the Israelites? You know how it is. When we look sideways at a fellow church member, whose lifestyle has shown much weakness and sin, thinking I'm not sure he or she is going to make it into heavenly glory. Or worse, I can't see how God could allow such a sinner into his presence. Why doesn't God do something? I can't stand the way that this brother or that sister acts. It's shameful. It's a bad example for my children. It would be better that they weren't here, that the Lord would remove them from the church and from the presence of decent folk. And who hasn't heard of someone who says, I believe in the Bible, but I refuse to go to church because of all those hypocrites. Really, at the heart of that statement, isn't such a person saying much the same thing? Why, God, are you allowing all this evil in your church to go unchallenged? The church you're gathering is no good. The people do not reflect your holiness. And yet you seem to delight in it, not caring enough to purge the church of such evildoers. Brothers and sisters, the question of church membership should never be decided on the basis that there is sin among God's people. Because then we might as well all stay home. No, God himself calls us through the office bearers, just like he is calling your sinful neighbor. We have no right to stand in judgment of the call of our God that's fueled by our disillusioned expectations of what we think God should be doing. But that's what's going on in Israel. Given the Israelites' first question, the second question should not surprise us. Such cynicism and disillusionment about God tolerating evil leads naturally to the question at the end of verse 17. Where is the God of justice? It's different from the cry of those under the altar in Revelation 6 verse 10, where they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These believers eagerly await 
the just judgment of our God. Well, the Israelites of Malachi's time are becoming skeptical that such judgment will ever come. The people of Israel and their contempt for the evil that they observed had the audacity to question God like he needed to listen to their instructions. Come on, get on with it. Where is this God who promised justice? But hadn't God revealed himself to be the very embodiment of justice? Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And Job rightly states, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so the Lord responds with the words of our text, Behold, I send my messenger. Behold can be translated as certainly. The messenger that would prepare the way for the coming Messiah was certainly going to come. No, the Lord was not overlooking all the evil that he saw within the church of Christ. He had a plan. First, his messenger would come to prepare the way. We know him as John the Baptist, the one who came in preparation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And following his coming, our text says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The word suddenly has the sense of surprise. The people would be surprised when all of a sudden his plan for justice would unfold in their midst. It wouldn't be what they expected. The Lord saying that following the first messenger, Christ would come into the very midst of his people. Malachi is drawing on the imagery we find in Ezekiel 10, where the presence of the Lord had risen above the temple and had departed. And now he speaks with certainty that he would return to his temple. The Lord, who had withdrawn from the temple where he had formerly dwelt in the midst of his people before the exile, would return again to dwell in the midst of his people. Our text says that the one coming was the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. We should not confuse the second messenger with the first. No, the messenger of the covenant is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, coming into the world to fulfill all righteousness. This is the one that the Israelites wanted to see come in judgment, the one they desired to usher in true righteousness and justice. And our text adds emphasis. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the ultimate commander of the armies of heaven, says, you may question his coming. But be assured, he is certainly coming, but his coming may not be what you expect. What may be surprising to the cynic and the skeptic is what verse 2 of our reading tells us that no one will be able to stand. The one who is cynical about the Lord's promises, the most righteous member of the congregation, to the most prolific sinner, and everybody in between, including the Israelite that thought that God needed to judge all those others who were living in depravity and sin. 
who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer, brothers and sisters, is no one. So what's our Savior's plan? That brings us to our second point. The twofold task of the Lord's coming. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a passive event. It's going to be a profound, it's going to have a profound effect. One of two things is going to happen according to the plan of our Savior as outlined in our reading. Either you will be refined and purified or you will be brought into judgment. No one will be able to stand. Either you will bow in reverence or you will cringe in fear. There's no middle ground, brothers and sisters. And so our reading begins to explain the details surrounding the refinement of his people at his coming. Christ is described as a refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. This imagery refers to the ancient process of refining silver. The furnace was used to burn off impurities, while a form of Caustic soda, similar to lye, was used as a reagent to promote the chemical reaction that would further purify the silver. The point is that our God was not oblivious to the impurities among his people, and he had every intention of cleansing those that were his. Our reading says he would begin with the, with the tribe of Levi, Levi represented the religious leadership, the priests who offered the daily sacrifices. They were to set the pattern for the rest of God's people regarding a pure walk of life. But as we can read in the earlier chapters of Malachi, they had failed miserably at their task. And the Lord tells the people that is where he's going to start, ensuring a renewed priesthood. And we see this renewal in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the great and final high priest, he came to his temple into the midst of his people to offer the final sacrifice that would cleanse us of all our sins. He fulfilled the Levitical priesthood. But he does more than that. Our reading says that he will sit as a refiner, applying his work of refinement. Christ begins to apply his work with the Levites, as representatives of the people. And we see the result upon the people. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old. That's what the text says. Malachi speaks about the former days, when the Levites were faithful to the Lord. In the previous chapter, in Malachi chapter 2, at the beginning, we read about a time when the Levites were faithful. So, where the Levites displayed this faithfulness. There it says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. I was a, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The Levites of former days had loved and honored their God, and they had led the people in righteousness. They paid attention to God's law and presented acceptable sacrifices to their God. With Christ's coming, 
An acceptable sacrifice would again be possible for God's people because those who place their trust in Christ have in him a perfect sacrifice offered once and for all upon the cross on their behalf. And although we are not yet perfected, the refining work of our Lord and Savior continues even today. He physically came to his temple into the midst of his people some 2,000 years ago to begin his refining work. Of this work, John the Baptist, who prepared the way before him, says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Christ continues to come to his temple. 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Those who are in Christ are being purified by our Lord and Savior through his Holy Spirit. Each Sunday again, the Holy Spirit applies the refining work of his word to our lives. And there may be great, a great deal of refinement required for me and for my neighbor. That's exactly why this is where the worst of all sinners needs to be in the crucible of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, under the refining power of his word. His word calls us to respond in true faith and repentance, displayed in fruitful living. And so, yes, there may be much sin in the lives of our fellow believers, but let us not forget that Christ is busy refining those that are his. And as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss yet will be saved. So in response to the Israelites' first disillusioned expectation that God was not all that concerned about the sin in the midst of the church, Malachi says no. He is coming to refine his people. And Revelation 22 verse 7 states that reality for us as well. And behold, he is coming soon. God will judge what each one of us has done, and all our wicked deeds and acts will be consumed in his refining fire, so that on that last day, those who believe will be presented before his holy throne without spot or blemish, cleansed of all that they have done wrong. But those who do not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, their experience will be different. They can only expect judgment. Malachi responds to the second disillusioned expectation revealed by the question, where is the God of justice? Was God ever going to bring about his justice? The answer is yes, brothers and sisters. Our reading says, then, making a connection to the preceding verse. First, Christ will come refining his people, purifying them through his word. Then the Father will come in judgment and justice will be done. Our reading says, I will draw near to you for judgment. That which is wicked will be consumed in the fire. The chaff will be burned up. 
Our reading says that God will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, and those who swear falsely. These are all sins that were punishable in the Old Testament by death. And he goes on to include many other areas where social justice is concerned, citing those who oppress the workmen, widows, orphans, or the sojourner. In short, all those who do not fear him. Our text points out the root of the problem. They do not fear God. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask this question. Are you living without fear for the Lord? Can you identify with those described in our passage, engaged in all kinds of wickedness? Then you need to respond in faith to the refining work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is being extended to you through the preaching of the gospel today. You may be the worst of all sinners, But if you put your trust in the refining work of our Lord and Savior, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The neighbor in the pew next to you might have his doubts. But we need to believe the words of God presented by the prophet Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so, brothers and sisters, when we look around and we see so much sin in the church, it may be easy to become disillusioned with God's plan. We can quickly become cynical about my neighbor's walk of faith. But be assured, God indeed is busy working out his plan for salvation. Let us patiently await the refining work of our Lord and Savior. Because there are two options, brothers and sisters. Place your hope and trust in the refining work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or suffer the swift and eternal judgment of God. Everyone's work will be revealed by fire on the great day of the Lord. The one who builds on the foundation of Christ will stand the test and receive their reward. Behold, he is coming. Amen.